Wow, thank you. Um, thank you all. Um, as Chaplain Lowe mentioned, I, I love college students, and, and part of the reason was when um, I was a college student, there were very few people I could like, go to and talk to about the real things that were happening in my life. And so um, when I became a minister, I said, you know what, I'm going to do that for college students. I'm going to make that my mission. And, um, and so I, would, I actually started a ministry at a local college where I came from in Pensacola, and we had about 30 young people who would come regularly and, and just sit down with me and tell me all their problems. And we figured it out together. And the Lord really blessed that time. And so as I've grown in ministry, um, I've, I've sort of like really tried to make that a core aspect of my ministry. So I, I do um, pray for you all often. Um, I'm up here every now and then you might see me. And, and I'm so thankful that the Lord um, has brought you all here and you're learning and you're around godly people who will love you and, and serve you. Um, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 131. I promise you, I did not give my sermon or its title to anybody here. Am I right? Uh, you know, there's nothing up my sleeve, in other words. And, um, and I, couldn't, I couldn't believe the songs and, and, and this the statement about restlessness and, and a disquieted heart that I, that I uh, heard through all of the, the things. And that's exactly what I'm going to teach on because it's something that, it's the spirit of our age. It really is. Like a restless heart is the spirit of our age. And if you are not feeling it, you're one of the blessed ones. But I, I meet very few people who are not truly experiencing restlessness. And I, I said to myself, you know, I'm just going to, that's what I'm going to talk about today. So I'm going to do that. So uh, if you have your Bible, Psalm 131, hear now the word of the Lord. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great, too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Well, all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is a word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's pray. Father, um, come now. These, this is your word and these are your people. Speak to their hearts as only you can do. Holy Spirit, you are here. I know you're here. So come now and do the work that you've set about to do through the songs and the reading of your word and its proclamation. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. When I was a young man, about 10 years old or so, my, my mother worked all the time. I was a latchkey kid and, and she worked like two or three jobs and the only, the only time I could spend with her was at night we would sit down and we would watch The Young and the Restless together. Anybody remember that? Young and the Restless. For those of you that don't know, it, The Young and the Restless 
it's not the best piece of, <laughs> of movie cinema. It's a soap opera, and it's, it's completely absurd, right? It's, it's just completely absurd. But, but I remember us sitting down and watching Young and the Restless together, and we would dialogue about it. And, 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 and I mean, like, if you watch the show, you'll see exactly why they call it Young and the Restless. Let me give you an example. Um, you would have, like, a young, successful, wealthy doctor who meets this young lady who is young and successful corporate lawyer, right? And, and they want to get together. And so in one scene, the young um, doctor who is intelligent and bright and, and successful and, and witty and smart, he's there trying to scheme and figure out how he can get to know this corporate lawyer. Um, and he has a friend, and his friend would come to him, and I mean, it's just absolutely absurd. His friend would come to him and say, I know what to do. I know her best friend's aunt who lives in a gated community, and we should dress up like cleaners and gain access to her house and then go into her house and steal her, um, you know, her, her daily planner or whatever it is where she keeps all of her numbers, and then we can get the number of the young lady and then call her. And then, so that's one scene, and then the next scene, you'll have the young lady, and she's like, I want to meet this guy, but I don't know what to do. And her friend would come to her and says, I know what to do. You, he's a doctor, so we should plan an accident. And, and you'll get injured, but not too much, just enough so you get injured, and then we'll take you to uh, the hospital where he is, right, where he would be on his shift, and then he could take care of you, and then, like, you can meet. And, and for 10 episodes, this unfolds. And it ends with uh, him and his friend, right, ending up in jail because they broke into this person's house. And the woman ends up on life support, right, because the accident goes horribly wrong. And even as a child, I would ask my mother, why didn't he just ask her for a number? Is that, does that make sense? Like, like why, go, why go through all of that? And she would say, son, that's why it's called Young and the Restless. But I would say that'd be so easy. And then I remember one time telling my mother, I said, mom, no, uh, please, surely grown adults don't act like this in, in normally. She looked at me and she said, son, unfortunately they act a lot worse. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Now, here's the genius behind that show. That show and the writers were brilliant because they always captured the fruit of a restless heart. You had all of these rich, talented, successful, skilled people at law, at science, at medicine, and the one thing they didn't master was the restlessness in their own hearts. With all of their training and education, no one ever taught them how to calm and quiet their own souls. And it always led to absurdity. You know, as I look out here, I see a bunch of people who are attractive, talented, 
gifted, and you're learning a lot of things. This, this is a great place to learn. But I want to talk to you just for a few moments, just for a few moments, I want to talk to you about the one skill you need to learn. And that is how to calm and quiet your own soul. Because I don't care who you are, if you do not learn the skill, the value, the gift of learning how to calm and quiet your own soul, your life will turn into a soap opera. And as a pastor, I see it often. Very bright, very talented, very gifted people who walk around restless, desperately looking for fulfillment, desperately looking for contentment, desperately looking to feel at rest. And they don't know how to do it because they've never been taught how to do it. And they live in a world that doesn't encourage it. Young and restless. So how do we quiet our own souls? Well, David tells us in this passage. David is an older man in this passage. As he writes this psalm. Many believe he's older and wiser. And he has some lessons to tell us. Now, for the sake of time, I'll just give you two. The first is this. David helps us to identify the cause of our restless hearts. Notice with me in verse number one, David says the following, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. David, at the very beginning of this psalm, expressed two things, humility, deep humility before the Lord. He says that my heart is not lifted up and my eyes are not raised too high. He's saying, I, I'm humbled. I've learned to humble myself before the Lord. Uh, and then he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for, me, uh, marvelous for me. In a sense, he's saying, I've learned the value of depending upon the sovereignty of God. Now, here's the beauty of Hebrew poetry is that it's meant to demonstrate a contrast. And the contrast to David in verse number one is not a heart that is humbled, but a heart that's prideful. And then the contrast between not occupying himself with things too great and marvelous for me is a, con is a heart that's, that's really anxious and lacks contentment. It's a heart that doesn't understand that God is sovereign and in control. That's the heart that's being contrasted here. Now, why did David choose pride? And, and why did David say that he doesn't concern himself with things beyond, uh, at least encouraging us not to concern ourselves with things that are beyond our control? Why those two things? Now, I, I have some theories. Perhaps Perhaps David as a king has been around enough people, judged enough people, been around enough people to know that these are the sins that often trip us up. Pride and concerning ourselves with things that are far beyond our control. David has seen enough people and he's seen enough lives wrecked by those two things. But I think something else. I think that David's assessment that pride 
and concerning ourselves with things that are beyond our control, even though that's true of so many people, and perhaps David's assessment is shaped by all those people, I think David's assessment is only really shaped by one person and one person alone, and that's Saul. If you think about the person that David had access to, behind the scenes look at his life, it is Saul. And if you read through scripture, Saul was the most tortured and restless person you could ever imagine. And just as by way of an example, you can go in Scripture and you could find how Saul's pride and concerning himself with things beyond his control really cost him. First of all, in 1 Samuel 18, David comes back from a successful battle that Saul sends him on, and the people begin to cry out, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And the Scripture says that Saul immediately was filled with pride and jealousy and anger, Because now he thinks David is going to take over his throne. And then the scripture says that a harmful spirit came to him. And if you study the harmful spirit that came to him, it was the spirit of restlessness. And he tries to kill David with a spear. And poor David who loved him and looked up to him and wanted to minister to him, even went so far as to play music for him. And he couldn't satisfy the restlessness in his soul. What about things concerning himself with things beyond his control? Well, you could go to 1 Samuel 13 and see it there. Where God tells, uh, through Samuel, God tells Saul, wait eight days until I come back. Now, why eight days? Because it is in those eight days God wanted to see if he would be patient and wait for him to come. And if you read the scriptures, he was not. He sacrificed. Two chapters later, he lost the entire throne because he did it again. But this time, he did it to God. Here's the point I want to make. There are sins right now lodged deep into your heart that are causing you to be restless. And either you or someone close to you, like a mentor or a pastor or someone who loves you, have to start doing surgery on your heart to, so that you could shine the light on those things and get the healing that you need. You know, one of the big differences between David and Saul wasn't that David sinned less than Saul. In fact, if you you read through both of the narratives, I often tell people this, if you read through both of the narratives, on paper, Saul was a better king than David. David, like, like, took another man's wife, orchestrated his death, was responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of Israelites, and constantly made mistakes. But the biggest difference between them all is that David knew how to quiet his heart before the Lord, and Saul did not. And if you doubt me, go back and read the narrative. That was Saul's downfall. His downfall was that he didn't learn how to calm and quiet his heart, and it caused, it caused him ultimately to lose his throne. Now look, we live in a social media age, and I gotta say this, right? I know everybody dumps on social media, so I'm gonna like step in on my hobby horse for just a moment. 
Look, I'm not going to tell you get rid of your social media, but I will say this. You're going to come a point, you're going to get to a point in your life when you're going to do it on your own. And you know what? You're going to realize that social media that you consume is disquieting your heart, leaving your heart restless. Because you long for the life you see on social media. You long to be like the person you see on social media. You long to have the skills of the person on social media. Sooner or later, you'll come to a place in your life where you'll give it up. I gave it up. I gave it up. So I'm, I'm showing you my hand. Right? Now, some of you say you can handle it. That's fine. I trust you. But some of you know you need to get rid of it. Because every time you go on it and you leave it, your heart is left restless. Now, real quick. And I'll say this too. Last thing I would say is this. I, I, I don't know if pride and not trusting the Lord is the sin that leaves your heart restless, but whatever it is, you need to identify it and give it to the Lord. You really do. Now, real quick, how do we get a restless heart? Uh, how do we get a heart that's quieted before the Lord? Verse number two. Uh, David says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I love this illustration. I love it. Because again, the contrast here is powerful. David gives this imagery of a child who's calmed and quiet and weaned. The opposite of that is what? An unweaned child. Now look, I've raised four children, and all of them are weaned. Praise the Lord. But you know, the downside of having weaned children is now you have to feed them. And with food prices, I would rather send them to college and pay for that than to pay for their meals. Because they eat a lot. Now when my children were not weaned, my wife and I had an agreement. I would go and get them and bring them to her. That was our agreement. It, it worked for us. And when my child started crying and screaming, I would walk over and I would pick up my child and I would start to walk over to her. And do you know what that child began to do? Squirrel and scream and tried to like angle itself to get here. And I'm like, dude, I can't help you. <laughs> like, uh, like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. You're wasting your time. And by the time I gave my child to my wife, there was this white spot right here. We tried to gnaw through my clothing. Sorry. I, I get carried away from time to time. I'm sorry. But you understand what I'm saying. You, you get what I'm saying. Gnawing at my clothing. Gnawing at my clothing. Why? Because, because they have needs. And those needs need to be met. You know, you have needs. And I know your needs need to be met. Please don't hear me say that your needs don't need to be met. You need fulfillment. You need encouragement. You need to feel like you're competent in something. God, that's how God created you. You have needs. You want to be loved and cared for. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but 
the, the problem isn't so much that you have needs. The problem is where those needs are satiated. You see, the only thing that could have satiated my children was to put them on their mother's breast. Can I say that? That's the only thing. Now, when, when they became weaned, right? Here's the point of the illustration. When they became weaned, they no longer came to my wife to be satiated by her hunger, by their hunger. What they came to my wife for, as she would even now take my sons and put them right up against her chest, is they came for their hearts to be quieted. That's why they come now. And the point of the illustration, and please don't miss this, is this. All of you have needs. And I'm telling you, those needs need to be met. And the point of the illustration is that the only place those needs can truly be met and satisfied is through Jesus Christ. You know, um, Augustine, um, Augustine, uh, I I read a biography by him. It was a short one, but it was interesting. His heart, as a young man, his heart was plagued with restlessness. Plagued with restlessness. Here's this brilliant, talented man. And, and, and as you read his story, especially in the confessions, he tried to satiate his restlessness with women and relationships and education and success, and nothing worked. And at the very beginning of his confession, he says this, Great are you, O Lord, and exceedingly worthy of praise. Your power is immense and your wisdom beyond reckoning. And so we men who are a due part of your creation long to praise you. We also carry our mortality about with us, carry the evidence of our sin, and with it the proof that you thwart the proud. And here is the statement that I want you to remember. Augustine goes on to say, you arouse us so that praise you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's all I have. How how does that work practically? Reading the word and prayer. Real quick, I was called to the bedside of a man who is about to die. He has a heart problem, like, like, like physical heart problem. And I didn't know what to say to him. Um, you know, even though I'm a pastor and I'm trained, like I don't always know what to say. So I took my Bible and I read Psalm 103 and in the midst of him gasping for breath and, and struggling, a weird quietness entered the room. And I heard him mother, thank the Lord. Praise the Lord. See, that's how you calm and quiet yourself. Father, I thank you so much. The lesson is easy to understand, but hard to put in place. Help us as your people to learn to calm and quiet our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.